Hope our kids weren't too distracting for you. We've always said if you want to have new life, then expect all of the noise that comes with that new life. Uh, we have uh, just had news that we are probably going to be having our baby two weeks earlier than expected. So in, in three or four weeks, there will be another picket addition to the church family, which is good. <coughs> hey, yeah. Um, I'm speaking this morning about God being good. And what better way to start than to tell a good story? Would you like to hear a good story? This is a true story. So I heard, it, well, it doesn't sound like a good story to begin with, but it does get better, spoilers. Um, <coughs> I was with a friend, and he was telling me about this situation at work where this new guy that he was working with was just going through this terrible time. Basically, his bosses were just treating him absolutely appallingly. And as he was going into the details of it all, you know, you know when you hear something like that and it starts to, you just feel the rise in anger inside of you and you want to go and grab somebody and give them a good telling off. Well, that was what was happening to me at this moment as he was telling me. And I just thought, what can I do to help in this situation? What on earth could I do? And uh, as I was thinking and praying about it, I thought I should just get in touch with this guy if I can. I had no name, no number, no contact details, nothing. And I thought, I'm just going to be this random guy, weirdo from the church, getting in touch with this guy. Anyway, I, got, I asked my friend, does he have any, no contact details, but he gave me a name. So I searched for him, found him on Facebook, and I sent him a message, and I heard nothing, absolutely nothing. So I thought, I've done what the Holy Spirit has asked me to do, what I feel the Holy Spirit has asked me to do. So kind of almost washed my hands of it. And we sat in, in church last Sunday, and I don't know if you remember, Dave encourages us in response to a word from Keith, um, encourages us to think of a name of somebody that is not saved that we could just say and, and expect things to happen. So I'm sat over there and I go, Charlie. And I go and speak to Sarah and I say, Charlie. And uh, blow me down, later that afternoon, I get a text from Charlie saying, it would be great to meet up with you. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. And so uh, I arranged to meet up with him. I go and have a coffee. And basically, I, I just listen to his story and hear his story. And he says, you know, Harry, it, it's funny that you have got in touch with me um, because I've been thinking a lot about going to church lately. I thought, what is this? What is going on here? He said, yeah, you know, probably for about the last year as I've been going through all this stuff, um, I've just found myself praying more and um, I just feel that something is happening. I thought, my goodness, God, what are you doing to me? So I say, well, you know, it'll be great for you to get into a church family. He says, yeah, I really think it'll be good to get into a church family. I said, why don't you come with me to church on Sunday? He said, yes, I would love to come to church with you on Sunday. Um, and I go, well, this is, this is just too easy, God. What are you doing here? Anyway, I, I say, you know, we've got these life groups on as well. Do you like football? He says, yeah, I love football. I said, why don't you come and play football? He said, yes, I would love to play football with you guys. Um, sadly, he didn't come today because he sent me a text last night saying he'd been offered a new job and he started work today. Isn't that amazing that God comes and meets him, takes him out of the trauma of the situation that he was in in his work, and less than two weeks later, gave him a new job. Isn't that fantastic? But he said in his text, you were so nice to me, and I am so thrilled and so excited to be coming to church with you at some point in the future. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story? 
God is so good in how he can orchestrate and bring those things together. But, you know, it's, and we often say it, God is good all the time, all the time. Yeah, good response, I like it. Um, but it can just seem like a trite saying, just something that we say. It, it, it happens a bit with be blessed and be a blessing, doesn't it? Where it's just something that we come out with. But, but what does it actually mean? And Kerry comes a couple of weeks ago and said, God is good should be one of the key anchors in our lives. And, you know, anchors are only really laid to rest when you're in safe harbor, aren't they? I always thought you put an anchor down when it's stormy to try and keep you safe, but you don't. You go into safe harbor and you put your anchor down, and what that does is it stops the tides and the eddies and the currents from dragging you away unnoticed into dangerous territory. And so Kerry comes and says, lay your anchor, and you lay your anchor in a safe harbor so that the eddies and currents and streams and turmoils of life don't bring you into danger. God is good. So what does that mean? Well, there's two things that I think that it could mean. There's God is good, and we imply, therefore, that he is good to me. Right? God is good to me. Woohoo! God is great. But what does that mean? when you face all of the bad stuff of life. When you become a Christian, we know that when we become a Christian, life is no walk in the park. We still go through turmoil and challenges. How do we reconcile a good God with that? And secondly, God is good means precisely that, that he is good. He is the ultimate authority and all that is good and moral and just in this world. And what we're going to do today is just look in a little bit of detail at these two things and see, as Dave said last week, if there's a need for us to individually, maybe corporately as a church, if we just need to recalibrate and reset that anchor of God is good. Uh, There's not enough time to answer all your questions. You know, this is quite a big topic. But hopefully, this could be just a starter block for each one of us where we can, we can really wrestle through these questions with God uh, and, uh, and not necessarily bring us into a place of understanding <laughs> because there's a mystery behind it all, but to one of wisdom and to one of peace. So, firstly, God is good means that God is good. You'll be very surprised or I hope not be surprised to hear that the Bible has a lot to say on this. (laughs) I know, right? Well done, Harry, for stating the obvious. But it doesn't doesn't show it in a way that we traditionally kind of are trained in the UK. You see, when we're at school, um, we are taught to read books to get answers to pass the exams, right? Um, where it's for facts, it's for figures, it's for black and white, it's for crystal clear answers. We're taught for knowledge, and a a great emphasis is really lent on that. We've got a lot of teachers in the room, or a handful of teachers in the room. Um, But but the Bible is not like that. The Bible is not just your answer book. It doesn't work like that. And so many of us, with our training and with our mindset, we, we come to the Bible and we use it as almost like a reference guide. And, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, it's the voice of God, and it's speaking. And so if you're treating it like a reference guide, you're still going to get some good stuff out of it because it's the Word, it's the voice of God. 
But if that's all that we're going to use it for, then, then we're, we're limiting it. And we are ultimately limiting ourselves. Um, it, it, I, I like how the Bible Project um, say in their kind of mantra, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So, as I'm saying this, how does it show us that God is good? And then, how does, it, how does God invite us into that story? I'm so glad you asked. Let's have a look. So, in, uh, <laughs> in Genesis, we see a lot of good. In fact, it's the most common thing that God sees in the beginning in 1, one and 2. God sees aspects of his creation, every aspect of his creation, and he sees it as good. The first thing that is not good, very interestingly, is for man to be alone. And, and that is done in the context of the command that is given, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So a woman was created to help man fulfill that command initially. So we're going to read Genesis 3, or parts of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 together. Um, from um, verse 4, <coughs> um, the, the snake has come to Eve to try and tempt. Uh, and, and Eve has been trying to kind of say, no, I don't want to do this, but the snake comes back. But the snake said to the woman, you will certainly not die if you eat of this fruit. God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then we, um, we read about how uh, they realize that they're naked. Suddenly the garden becomes breezy. Maybe it's because they've realized that they're naked. And God comes to find them. And uh, eventually God says and asks the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman answered, the snake tricked me, so I ate it. And, and most of us here know, we know that the tragedy of the situation was that Eve did what she thought was good in her own eyes. And we know that we reap the consequences of that today. Let's quickly jump into Genesis 4, where we read about Cain and Abel. Now, uh, Cain and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. Um, and at this point, they'd been banished. They'd been sent um, east of the Garden of Eden. And uh, they come and they, they bring an offering to God. Um, and God looks with favor on Abel's, but he doesn't look with favor on Cain's. And as you'd expect in brotherly rivalry, Cain is not best pleased, except, uh, except that he goes beyond brotherly rivalry, and he has murder in his heart. He's angry, he's dejected, and he's feeling full of revenge. This is what God said to him. He said, if you act rightly, Cain, you will be accepted. But if not, sin lies in wait at your door. Some versions say crouching at the door. Its urge is for you, yet you can rule over it. You don't realize just how much muscle and energy is in that little crouching animal right there. Notice how there's this overlap with the snake that we've seen in the story before. The snake that doesn't pounce, but it's also mysterious and sly, crafty. There's more taking place here than meets the eye. And somehow the temptation is depicted as something that you wouldn't expect that's going to ruin your life. And when you first see it, it doesn't seem to be dangerous, but it is the very thing that is going to destroy you. 
We carry on. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? He answered, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then God said, what have you done? The exact same thing that he'd said to Eve before. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And as you read these two narratives in parallel, you start to see some of these overlaps that's happening. And you see how it's enriching a reading of the story. And you can see how it starts to enhance what you think about the true story and what's it doing. The first story in the Bible about Adam and Eve, about human and um, life, that's what Adam and Eve translate to, is about people making a really bad decision. A really bad decision. And as you go through it, you see that they redefine what is good and what is evil. Actually, it will be good for me to do the thing that God said not to do, even though I might not quite understand why. And, and that's what you've gone through so far. But, but then you get to this next story, the very next story, and it's about another human. Another human replaying the same exact thing. These stories are giving us a, a template of what the human condition is like. And, and as such, it's what is the pattern of my life? And I, I should expect to see this pattern in, in other biblical stories. I should expect to see this pattern maybe in my story, in my life. It's as if this template's been given and we see all of these, we can see all of these other portraits that come after, and they give all of these different examples. And so maybe one example, maybe the story of Cain doesn't quite resonate with you, but when we get onto Abraham, or when we get onto um, Achan, or when we get onto Saul, or when we get onto Daniel, or any of these other guys, maybe something will come and resonate with you there. There's no way that you can escape reading the Hebrew Scriptures without seeing yourself in many of these characters, because they are reflective mirrors. They're all about humans. And who is sitting here reading this text? A human. So we'll jump to Genesis 16. We're about Abram now. In the previous chapter, in chapter 15, God has promised descendants to Abraham through Sarai. It's a great thing. It's a great covenant-setting thing. And God really lays it all on, on, the, on the table for Abram. And then we read in, in Genesis 16, Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. I wonder what Abram was thinking there. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. That word obtain is not a great or not an accurate translation. Um, obtain literally means to be built up from, and it's the exact same word that is used of when God creates Eve from the rib of Adam. It's also the same word that is used when um, the, the people want to build the Tower of Babel. And so alarm bells right now should be going off. Sarah is trying to be a bit like God, and it seems like trying to do this terrible mistake where God went and intervened with the Tower of Babel. Um, and just to be extra clear, the text then goes on to say, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, as opposed to listening to the voice of God. Um, as we go on, we see that there's, there's this animosity that comes between Hagar, the slave, 
and Sarah because Hagar becomes pregnant and starts to look down on Sarah. And now in verse 6, we read, But Abram said to Sarah, Look, your slave woman is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And what is good in the sight of Sarah? To treat her harshly, and Hagar fled from the presence. Hagar becomes the fruit. She becomes the way that they are redefining good and evil in their own eyes. And all of a sudden, we have this very realistic narrative portrait of the human condition. Things are difficult. Things actually are really hard. I can't, I can't see a way past this. They're not, they're not working the way that they wanted. And, and God said that this was going to happen in a particular way, but it's just not happening. And so I think the best thing for me to do is to take things into my own hands. Who hasn't lived that story? I know I have, multiple times. So the author here wants you to realize that this is not just a story about Abraham screwing up. This is a story of Abraham wrestling with the same serious evil that all humanity has been wrestling with. Satan is not mentioned in the story at all, but he is very, very present. And the author is making that very clear by bringing out the melody of Genesis 3 and 4. I wish we had time to go into more. We don't. Um, but you can go away and look for yourself. You can look at it in the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Aaron listens to the voice of the people. And it says that he saw randomly. What did he see? He sees what is good in his eyes. Honestly, if you read an NASB translation or something that is quite accurate, you'll see this verb, and he saw, and it's got no context at all for what it is. And it's because the author is trying to plug you back in to this narrative here. Uh, Moses comes down from the mountain and says, what have you done? Aaron tries to dodge the question. In the story of Achan, he takes items from Jericho. You know the famous story of Jericho where they march around um, for six days and on the last day they, they blow the trumpets? Or where was the last time that we heard anything about six days and then a trumpet? Or six days and then doing seemingly nothing? The creation story. It's plugging you back into this. Um, Achan sees some goods, he sees a tongue of gold, he desires them, and he took them, and he hid them in his baggage in the ground. Joshua says to Achan, what have you done? Again, playing on this melody. Um, when uh, in 1 Samuel 8 and 9, and we, we hear the story of Saul becoming king of Israel, God this time tells Samuel to listen to the voice of the people. They've been doing this ever since Egypt, God says. They've been wanting idols for themselves. And suddenly this king becomes this idol figure which plugs back into the golden calf story. And you see this melody happening again. Um, then Samuel says, he says, I am the seer, not the prophet, which is the normal word. He says, I am the seer. I am the one who sees things. Then he says to Saul, on whom is all of the desire of Israel? Isn't that on you, Saul? All of the desire, all of Israel desires you. They see you and they desire you. There's lots of desire there, but it's, again, plugging into Eve's initial desire for the fruit. When it comes time to inaugurate Saul, they can't find him because he's hiding away. Where's he hiding? In the baggage area where Achan had previously hidden his stuff. These guys were geniuses. They knew what they were trying to do, but it's just stuff that we've not been trained to see. This is how God is communicating 
how we know that he is a good God. How we know what is good. Is it how I define what is good or is it how God defines what is good? So all of these stories, they're, they're really aware of each other and they've, they've started introducing all of these little turns of phrase so that all of them, they come together. And we see this, this profound unity in the Bible. We're talking about huge sections of Hebrew scriptures that they were all originally eyewitness accounts, <laughs> all in their different pieces, but they've been woven together with these patterns of unity. And this is just one particular pattern. We could do all day going through different, uh, different other patterns, but this one is, is really beautiful and really profound because it's fundamentally trying to teach us about the human condition. It's talking about you and me. And what's more, Jesus then comes and inserts himself right into these stories. In John 5, he's answering questions on why he was doing things on the Sabbath. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things, these things the son also does in the same way. The repetition here, it does so many things. It's linking all of these portraits of human failure together. If I don't identify with this one, maybe I'll identify with another one. But ultimately, it should lead to this. I want a human who I know is the choice and good one. Surely that person will be our salvation. The whole story is saying, you know about humans. <laughs> from page three, from page three, you know what a human is like. You know what they do, what their, what their pattern is like. But at the same time, these stories are, are training us to see the world in a certain way and to see the patterns of what my decision-making will do so that I can recognize the snake even when he's not visible. The snake doesn't appear in any of the stories after page three, but he's there. This is not something that happened just a long time ago. This is talking about the human condition. God is good, provides for us an anchor. It provides for us a framework by which we can interact with the world in a way that is good. But how do we come to know what is good? It can seem pretty airy-fairy if I simply say, um, see what is good from God's point of view rather than your own. How? How do we do that, Harry? Um, again, I'm very glad that you asked that question. Let's have a look, shall we? Um, we'll go back to what I said before about that assumption that God is good means that God is good to me. God is blessing me. Um, God's, God's blessing is not some kind of blessing dispenser. Okay? Put in, and then I at least get out something commensurately, if not more. It's not some lottery ticket where if I give a bit of my time or a bit of my money or a bit of my love, then wham, bam, here's the jackpot. Thank you. That, that's not what it's like. God's blessing is this. It's what God does to us and among us. He shares the goodness of his spirit, the vitality of his creation, the joys of his redemption. He empties himself among us and we get what he is. That is God's blessing. Eugene Peterson says it very well like this. He says, God gets down on his knees among us. He gets on a level and shares himself with us. He, he does not reside far off and send us diplomatic messages. He kneels among us. 
that posture is characteristic of God. This discovery and realization of this is what defines what we know of God as good news. God shares himself generously and graciously. God enters into our need. He anticipates our goal. He gets into our skin and understands us better than we do ourselves. Everything we learn about God through Scripture and in Christ tells us that he knows what it is like to change a diaper for the 13th time in the day. I know also what that is like. To see a report over which we have worked long and carefully just gather dust on somebody's desk for weeks and weeks. To find our teaching greeted with scorn and indifference by children and youth. To discover that the integrity and excellence of our work has been overlooked and the shoddy duplicity of another's rewarded with promotion. God stands. He is foundational and dependable. God stoops. He kneels to our level and meets us where we are. God stays. He sticks with us through hard times and good, sharing his life with us in grace and peace. When we sing the goodness of God, when we talk about the goodness of God, this is what we mean. That is the blessing of God. God is good, and God is good. Amen? So what does that mean for you and me? There, there is a verse that is, is often quoted to people in tough times, and sometimes it's really encouraging. Sometimes it can come across as a bit patronizing. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It comes at a crescendo in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 8. Times are tough, but don't worry, because God will work everything so that he'll be okay. Like I said, sometimes people find that really encouraging. Other times people just go, that's not particularly helpful, but thank you very much for the situation that I'm in. But Tom Wright, in his book, um, Reflecting on the Coronavirus, he suggests a different but equally legitimate translation. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for good with those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is his purpose through these people. God has called them to be part of his saving purpose for his suffering world. He goes on to say in, in reflection about the coronavirus, but equally it could be said of anything that, that grips your heart or pulls at your souls just like I had when I heard about Charlie and the appalling situation that he was going through. He says this, believers at this point, when you're looking at the terrible stuff in the, words, in the world, believers at this point, may not have words to speak their lament, but they may still have work to do. In, in healing, in teaching, poor relief, campaigning, and comforting, these things grow out of lament. As with the church in Antioch, we might not be able to say why, but we may glimpse what. Who is at risk? What can be done? Who shall we send? Paul, in his writings, is offering a, a Jesus-shaped picture of a suffering, redeeming providence in which God's people are themselves not simply spectators, not simply beneficiaries, but active participants. They are called according to his purpose. Since God is even now using their groaning at the heart of the world's pain as the vehicle for the Spirit's own work, holding that sorrow before the Father, creating a context for the multiple works of healing and hope. Such God-lovers, that's you and me, are therefore shaped according to the pattern of the Son, 
the cruciform pattern in which God's justice and mercy, his faithfulness to the covenant and to creation are displayed before the world in tears and toil, lament and labor. That is our vocation in this present time. God is good and amazingly, wonderfully, he invites you and me to bring that goodness to the world together with him. It blows my mind. Why would God want me (laughs) to do that? Um, I wonder if there is anybody here who has been a follower of Jesus for more than 50 years. If you've been a follower of Jesus for more than 50 years, could you stand up? Wonderful. Look at that. Um, I stand in awe of these people here. Um, For me to stand in front of you (laughs) and share on the goodness of God is almost laughable, really, when you see the living, breathing testimonies of the lives filled with the goodness of God that stand here before you today. The impact that each one of these people have had uh, in their long obedience to Jesus is immense. Uh, in the lives that they've interacted with, in the seed they've sown, in, in, in the love that they have given generously and radically to people. And through it all, each one has known that God is good. If you want to know more of the goodness of God, seek out these people here before you. Uh, these people of faith. They're, they're, they're just one reason why community is so important. Uh, so that we can share in the voice of experience and wisdom and let them speak into our lives when it's been so profoundly influenced by God. Uh, Let's just applaud these people, I think. (laughs) So I wonder if we could just do something that we've not really done before. Um, Those guys that have stood up um, uh, because they've been a follower of Jesus for more than 50 years, I wonder if you could come to the front um, to pray for people and pray the blessing of God on people's lives. Um, Would you just come forward now? We'll get a chair for you if you want to sit. That's no problem at all. Um, And and all that we want them to do is to um, just to minister God's goodness to you. Uh, These hands that have known God's goodness in such a, a profound way for decades and decades, they can just come pronounce the blessing of God on you. There's hand sanitizer and all that kind of stuff. The worship team are going to minister to us too, and they'll help us respond once we've been prayed for. Um, If you want to be prayed for, but don't want to get too close to the crowds, we've asked John and Julia just to stand a bit to the side as well so that you can go to them and and still be able to receive blessing. But, But why, you know, it could be that your moral compass has just got out of sync. Maybe you need a bit of repentance. Maybe um, you just need to reconnect with God in some way to regain the Father's heart and to know that again. You can have that in just this pronouncement of blessing that each one of these guys can give to you here. He is, he is the God who stands. He is the God who stoops. He is the God who stays. He is a good God. God's blessing is open for us all today. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're going through. There's no discrimination. God's restoration and renewal can come for you today.
And if you want to simply be blessed by this God, then just come forward and receive from these guys.